And as we talk about His greatness, we know that God uses an instrument to measure greatness. This instrument is the cross. Cross is the measurement of that. If you want to know how you measure up in God's eyes, you know, our performance is not going to cut it, is it? Our being good, our success is not going to do that. What we've achieved is not going to do it. We measure ourselves by what Christ did on the cross Himself. That is what we have to look at. And when you look at the book of Mark, you see how Christ was crucified. He's marching to His crucifixion, His cross. And you see that Christians have to be crucified there. Christians have to die at the cross. So Mark in his Gospel is constantly talking about Christ and the cross. The whole Bible is about Christ, isn't it? And he's now marching to that uh, Jerusalem, the city that is going to crucify him. He's going to the cross. He'll be delivered up. He'll be dying there and he'll be rising again the third day. It just doesn't end with him dying, does it? Of course, the song we just heard was dealing with that. God's qualification for greatness sounds like the most opposite thing you'd ever think of. It's death. It's death. Because the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And God qualifies greatness in His eyes by death. Christ has to die. Of course, it's more extended off that death. But He must die. Uh, we come to chapter 10, and this is His third major passion prophecy that He's talked about. He's already said this, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to have to die and then rise again. Disciples just don't get it. And as soon as He says it here in our text today, that is in chapter 10, how do the disciples respond to it? Well, not the way that you would think they ought to respond in uh, graciousness. But uh, they know that if this is a cross for Him, He's already told them that they have to take up their crosses. So the cross is also for them. And they have to have that. So do we. We have to have that cross. So they're kind of afraid to ask what it means. And we see in our text today, what they start doing is discussing how great they are what position they can be in the kingdom, rather than this major part of what the gospel is, the death of Christ. And so what it means for them is that they're going to have to die, die spiritually, because the law, the Word of God, kills us, doesn't it? And then when we have spiritual life, we will not die Our bodies will die. There's going to be physical death for these men. We know that. Most of them were persecuted. They all were persecuted in one way or the other. The Lord is uh, expanding on this, I think, quite a mysterious but wonderful truth. We all know the death, burial, resurrection. We know that's the heart of the Gospel. But this is the kind of frame of mind that has to be put into the heart of the disciples. And they're really not going to get it even after He's dead on the cross. It's a 
astounding. It's astounding. They're just so self-obsessed with themselves being the greatest. That's really what they want. That's what they're obsessed with. And let's don't get on them too much because that's our problem. Because we're always raising ourselves up even when we don't want to, even when we don't even think so. (laughs) That's the trickiest part. We're very selfish beings. We were born that way. And we know when Christ came in, He started changing us. He changed us drastically. He gave us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And we know we have everything that we need. The only problem is that we have to keep on dying. It's a daily thing. So Jesus is communicating, I think, a very important spiritual truth here. He's bringing forth something that they're fighting, they're resisting. They don't like the idea of him talking about death. And, of course, Peter said, oh, you don't have to do that. You'll get a really good understanding if you if you back up into chapter 9, verse 33. He's been saying this all along. You can say Jesus is just seeming to be saying the same thing. And um, in Mark 9, 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, well, what were you discussing on the way? So they'd been talking about how great they were. And Jesus didn't say anything on the road. Then they got in the house. He said, uh, he knew. He wanted to get them right where it was at, though. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. And we know why they kept silent. <laughs> For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. They do that a lot, don't they? Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, he's talked about this before. To be first, you have to be last. Just a few weeks later in the life of our Lord, His disciples are about to enter into Jerusalem for His death and resurrection that the subject is addressed again. Now, he's, he's actually done it twice told him twice and he's kind of added on and now he gives a little bit more. So during the Passion Week, he will say that again. You remember the Last Supper, you know, the Passover. Uh, in uh, Luke 22-24, it says, There arose a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, that the one who is the greatest among you must become like the least, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So at the end of the ministry, in Galilee, he's teaching this lesson that we have heard so much. Why does he keep drawing it into them? And why do we have to keep studying it? Because it's there. Because we have the same problem as the disciples. Now, we're on the back side of the cross. We know he had to die. We know the theology of that. Right? That's, that's key. It's central. It's, it's the focus. The very focus. But we have to remember. We have to be humbled. We have to be a servant. We're not the greatest. And so he teaches this lesson to a hard heart, obstinate group of men. And when we look at Mark 10, 35, and then we, we carry it on through, which where we're going to be dealing with today, we'll see that uh, he's about to enter Jerusalem. 
This lesson is taught it's about the greatness of humility. It's about the greatness of service. And then I'm going to take it one step further with what I just introduced ourselves earlier as slaves. The greatness of slavery is the theme of this passage. How offensive can that be? But it's scriptural. He came to serve. Not to be served, but to give His life a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. And that's where we're focusing and where we're heading to today. Because that's what it's about, folks. He didn't come to be served. He came to give His life a ransom for the many. So, why don't we all stand in honor of God's Word. We will do that. I invite you to turn to Mark 10, starting at actually verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to Him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him, and three days later He will rise again. Now look at what happens immediately after that story. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Well, they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. You shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to Himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your truth, this Gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection, about what true greatness is, about what glory is that we may learn. Oh, Lord, how we can learn to be servants and quit being selfish. In your son's name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Oh yeah, the Word of God. Can't wait to get into it. And it's what it's about, isn't it? In Mark 10, starting at verse 32, we get the basis. We get the basis of what greatness is. What's the basis? The cross. The cross. That's 
what we always want to focus on. You having trouble in life? Go back to the cross. Look at the cross. Look what happened there. You know, your burdens were taken off. Well, Jesus here is on his way to Jerusalem. It says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. He will go to Jerusalem. It is going to happen. Nobody is going to stop him. And he will be there at the right time because he's in control of all things. He's in control of his death. Even though there will be men who kill him, at the same time, he's in absolute control of this. He's not somebody who's weak. He's on the backside of the Jordan River. Remember, they've been in Perea. And they're going to go through Jericho. When you get to Jericho, it's a beautiful city, great place to, to hang out during the wintertime. It's really close to the Dead Sea. The elevation there is like below sea level. But like the lowest spot in the earth, that's where they're at. That's where they're going to be at. But they're going up to Jerusalem. That's funny. They've been north, but they kept saying we're going up to Jerusalem. When you say, he's like, hey, I'm going up to Des Moines, Iowa. I'm going up to Nebraska. Because the state is up north, right? Well, as I've said many times, that word up is Eliot. Eliot, they're making their ascent because there is a long climb to make up where Jerusalem is sitting way up over the other places surrounding it. And so he's going in the direction some 3,500 feet is what they're going to be climbing in a short amount of time from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now picture that. Now that's, that's a climb. In, in a short amount, it's not very, it's not far. It's not like over the course of a hundred miles, thirty-five hundred feet. We're talking just in a in a short distance. So he's walking. He doesn't have any elevators there. And they're walking on rocks, and he's walking ahead of them. There's an entire entourage there that's following him, and he's the leader of this parade. He's the leader that's that's heading to Jerusalem. We all know where he's going. And uh, he's going firmly there to the place of his death. Now, it's interesting. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking on ahead of them, and they were what? Amazed. Have you seen that word in the book of Mark? Well, it would be amazing if we didn't see it, you know? Because almost every week we talk about they were amazed. Now, who's amazed? I think here it's talking about the twelve. They were amazed. They're, they're, uh, you know... They're walking into his death, and he said, uh, "Take up your cross." <laughs> They're not sure what all this means. They sure don't want to be talking about that. They think the kingdom is really ready to roll in, and let's go, let's do it, let's do it now. We're taking it. We're taking the city. We're taking the nation. We're taking the world. We have the king. Look what he's done. You know, man. I mean, this guy is amazing miracles. They're amazed. There's a natural fear here, though, of anybody who is knowing that he's talking about death. Uh, and they're trying to dismiss it, but he's saying crosses for us. Uh, wow. He's convicted. He has a conviction. His conviction is that he's going to walk, boom, there. And then it says that uh, they were, as they were amazed, I mean, they're. They're confused. They're, they're bizarrely confused of what's happening. And you remember in, um, I think it was in um, 
John 11, where you have Thomas. Thomas responds with this. Okay. Now Jesus says, we're going to go there. And then Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him. Right? <laughs> now he says that in a negative tone. If that's what he's going to do, it's kind of fatalistic, isn't it? Let's just go and die with him too then. Now there's there's the twelve who are amazed and those who followed were fearful. Uh, that's the rest of the followers, the wider group of disciples. See, there's the twelve apostles, twelve disciples. That's learners, mathetas. And then there are other mathetas, many of those who've been following, but they're not part of the inner twelve. And it says they were fearful. Uh, they have heard something about his death too. They're baffled. They're confused. And they're thinking, if people are thinking this, why is he going into this danger? If he knows that's the, and we know, you know, even somebody who doesn't really understand what's going on much, there are people who want to kill him, right? Everywhere he goes, but Jerusalem is the capital. And that's where all the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the, you know, the, the, the leaders of Jerusalem are at. And you know that he doesn't have a chance there. Why would he go there? This is, this is absolute danger. Is he crazy? So in 831, he's talked about his death, burial, resurrection. 931, he does the same thing. And, and in here, he gives the details in chapter 10 even more than before. He just keeps mounting up just a little bit. And, you know, you could go back to 831, 931, 32, and that kind of uh, scripture there um, and compare it. This is a little bit longer. Okay, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, be condemned to death, They'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Is that in there? They will then mock him. This is the great, fantastic, awesome, miraculous Jesus who they're going to mock. They're going to spit on him. That's one of the most humiliating things that can happen to anybody, isn't it? And scourge him and kill him. In three days he will rise again. And we know this. And we know it happens. It's all too familiar with it. That's the problem. Sometimes the wonder of Jesus is kind of uh, on the back burner. Uh, and because we've heard things so much. But when you look at Scripture and you start going over it, I had to keep comparing it with the other passages and see where he didn't say this before and now he's saying some other things. He's added to it. and Boy, he's given detail. I mean, this is a prophecy of something that has not happened. It tells them exactly what they're going to do. He knows that. He wrote the book. He is the Word of God, isn't He? And so we have it right here. The details. Now, the Son of Man will be delivered, okay? It says, delivered to the chief priest. That's the idea of betrayal. Who betrayed Jesus? Judas. He's going to be delivered up. He's going to be taken to the leaders, right? And they are the religious aristocrats. And what they're going to do is condemn him. Now, we're, we're taking in some kind of law courts. We're taking something legal in here which is one of the worst 
trial as it's ever been. There wasn't uh, any truth. And they got embarrassed, had to get embarrassed when they tried to bring somebody up to give some kind of a testimony and they botched it up. There's just nothing that's going to go right in this legal uh, courtroom. And courts, that actually there was like six trials that went on. The murder of Jesus is just amazing in, in itself in the way that they carried out their justice. But uh, then you're going to take the leaders of the Jewish people and then they're going to hand him to the Gentiles. Not just the Jews, but now to the Gentiles, mainly the Romans. But it's actually kind of a symbolic of us too. Most of us uh, right here are Gentiles, aren't we? And we're, we're the ones who killed him, really, uh, our sin. But I'll take it one step further. God killed Jesus. Now that sounds overwhelming. You say, what? It had to happen. This was foreordained. In Acts chapter 2, that's one of the first things that Peter talks about in um, the, about the crucifixion of Christ. Because this is all God's plan. Because if it doesn't happen, we don't have our sins forgiven. And we're sitting here. As a matter of fact, we're not even sitting here. Why would we be here? There would be no reason if He doesn't die and resurrect. So it's God's plan. That's the only way His justice can be satisfied. Because our sin, just one sin, is enough to condemn us to hell. And so there has to be somebody who stands in our place that is perfect and righteous and, and just in every way. So he's handed over to the Gentiles. says, they will mock him. They will spit on him, scourge him, and then kill him. Now, he's saying this to the twelve. They're still not getting it. How can this be? This doesn't make sense. Well, a lot of times Jesus does not make sense, does he? That's because he does it God's way. And so he's saying, you have to die on the cross. Or, or he says that we have to take up our cross. He says things that sound opposite. He says we have to be slaves. Who in their right mind would want to follow a man who says you have to be a slave? And all the details are here. Uh, look in our book of Mark. This is easy. Stay in the book of Mark, but just turn a few chapters to Mark 15. Mark 15, verse 17 through 20. Oh, the wonders. Something we're familiar with, but this should be drilled into our minds. They dressed him up in purple, like he's a king. Since he claimed to be a king, we'll give him the robes, give him the purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. What they do? They began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him put his own garments on him, they led him out to crucify him. There we go. They mocked him. This is the king of the universe. This is the creator. This is the holy one of God. The most amazing man who's ever lived on the face of this earth who was also God. And they mocked him in that way. What a shame. He says, they will scourge me in Mark fifteen fifteen. 
Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate, who was a Roman, released Barabbas, who was a murderer and actually had uh, been one who had killed people, Romans, or anybody that was on the Romans' side. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourged, beaten, whipped, Cat of Nine Tales. Chapter 14, 65, and he said, spat upon. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fist and to say to him, prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. You know, amazing, just spitting at him. You know, they're beating him and doing all this other stuff, but spitting, you know, in our day or in the Middle East, especially any kind of place, if somebody spits on somebody intentionally, and be careful, on the front row, I have been known to spit, and I'm not trying to humiliate you. I get a little excited and it just starts spewing everywhere. But we're talking, they, they just really, really did it, you know, all over him, and all those guys around. And I remember uh, in uh, in a baseball game one time there was a really good player, and he kind of ruined his reputation. One time he there was a bad call he thought, and he spit on the umpire. You don't do that. Well, he not only got kicked out of the game, he got kicked out for a lot of games, banded away. Everybody remembered it, and to this day a Hall of Fame type player, when you mention his name, no matter how many World Series he won, and he was he was just an awesome player, hitting, fielding, speed, and everything. You don't think of how great he was in the World Series that he won, but him spitting on that umpire. Isn't that interesting? Just what spitting would do on somebody. Well, this is the Lord of the Universe. They spat on Of course, they did a lot of other things. Worse things, but uh, see how detailed Jesus is? He's saying what's happening here. He's in control of all this. And if he wanted to, he could have kept it from happening. I'm thankful to the Lord that he didn't. Our sins had to be taken care of. So we're back to Mark 10. We're at verse 35, and we go into man's measure of greatness. Now we've seen God's measure of greatness that He has to serve us. He has to go through suffering to do it. And that is greatness. Okay, let's see what humans think of greatness. It shows you. Man is not in tune with the way that God thinks. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a prayer. This is really a prayer, even though they're, they're talking and they're speaking. That's really what we do, don't we? we? We go up to Christ. We don't see Him as He is, but we know His presence. We know when we go to God, we go to the throne room of God, and He wants us to come in there, and we want to, He wants us to ask. He wants us to ask whatever His will is and what's good. So, uh, really, verse 35 is essentially a prayer. You have James and John. 
You remember, James and John are called the sons of thunder. And so they're thundering a request as they come right up to Jesus. Sons of thunder, I guess. They really are. They're going to they're gonna change, though, after, after the resurrection. Things change immediately. When the Holy Spirit comes into these guys' lives, it's uh, drastically different. But uh, they've been told by Christ that they'd be sitting on thrones with Him. Now, we, we talked about that, I think, last week just a little bit. and It's found in uh, Matthew 19. Verse 28, if you'd like to look. This is what they heard. And this was in uh, this whole story is in uh, Mark, but Matthew adds this detail. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross and everything, you know, immediately almost after all this, it's probably within that same context. It's definitely written that way. Matthew and Mark has this. And then in 28, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you that you who have followed me, you, the twelve, the apostles here, in the regeneration... When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones. Now, do you think they hear that? Oh, boy. Their ears are perking up. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And you know where their minds are at now? They don't hear another thing that He says. The twelve thrones. Oh, there's... 12 of us, I would like to be right on the side of Jesus and hey, brother, wouldn't you like to be over here? The sons of thunder. Jesus, sons of thunder. Sounds right, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound cool? This sounds great. Almost, almost certain that they understood that you come boldly before the throne. They're coming boldly. They come confidently in the book of Hebrews. Doesn't it say that we are to do that? So this sounds right. And it is right to come to Jesus and ask. But what was their motive? Their motive is about being in a great position. To be great. It wasn't what God was willing to say, well, they just He just said that, sitting on the twelfth. Yeah, I did. But now they're thinking about themselves. Okay. Sounds pretty good. Motivation is totally wrong. You know who they're glorifying here? <laughs> they're not glorifying Christ. They're glorifying self. That's our tendency. We start thinking about our own little puny lives and our puny little minds, which are not infinite, but finite. And those finite minds are sinful. And we try to train that mind, as it says in Romans 12, that we are to be into the Word of God as we offer ourselves as sacrifices, that uh, we also are to be renewing our mind. Renewing it. Because there are things that come up that start shoving what we know to be truth And other things come in place of it, and if we're not renewing our mind, we start thinking on wrong things, having the wrong motive. They take a truth that Christ says and then take it into a position for their own self, their own glory. Jesus had promised them glory. What else do you want? I I used to hear one person saying, it's not bad, but he said, hey, as long as I get in, I'll just be a glorified janitor. 
<laughs> a glorified janitor. Hey, I don't care where I'm at. I'm just glad to be there. Hey, I'm just glad to be in the army, guys. I'm glad to be in the parade. You know what I mean? But there is more than just that. You know, James and John have a mother that's in this group of people that's going along to Jerusalem. She's been there quite a lot. And she will continue to be with this group. Uh, in Matthew chapter 20, this is interesting. Check this out. This is kind of something I really didn't think about until this week. Salome, or Salome, I want to pronounce it. James and John's mother, who comes and requests this, she's the mouthpiece. Now, they're saying it too, but she's the mouthpiece for the two boys. Sitting on the side of Jesus, you betcha. Mom would love that. They always want the best for their kids. They should. But we always want the best that what God says, though, too. Why would you bring your mother along up there to Jesus like it? Come on, these are the sons of thunder. Can't they handle this on their own? You know, they shouldn't have any problem with this. They're the disciples. Well, it's not that they just brought their mother, but it it is who their mother is. That's what I want you to catch. It's quite interesting. When you study the crucifixion of Christ, Matthew, Mark, John, you'll see three women at the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? Mary Magdalene. And there's a third woman. The third woman who is at the cross is identified in three different ways in the Gospels. Matthew calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So she went all the way there. What are we getting at? Let's keep going. She's the woman that hung in there, right? When the, when the apostles had fled, remember them? And among them was the sons of thunder, along with Peter. <laughs> they all run, right? She's still there. Quite a strong faith. When you are peering with somebody who's being crucified, you're identifying with him. How are the people going to respond to you? Yeah. Uh, Matthew calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark calls her Salome. Same woman, though. So that was her name. And then John calls her the sister of Jesus' mother. So their mother is Jesus' aunt. Now that's interesting. That being the case, this is now a family deal. We're related. James and John. It's a family deal. They're getting to play the family card here. You know? When you when you have connections, try to tap into that, right? So she feels very close to Jesus. Now, James and John, along with Peter, Peter, James, and John have been at the Transfiguration. Remember that? These guys are in the inner three. There are 12 disciples. They're divided up really into about three groups. You'll see it as, as in all the lists. There's like four of them. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. 
Okay, that is one group that's you know right up there. And then at the transfiguration, and then also at a raising of a dead girl. Guess who's there? Peter, James, and John. James and John. These guys, the sons of thunder. Huh? Jesus gets a select few just to come in and kind of experience a little bit of extra special thing. So there were times when that that happened. That's uh, that's interesting, isn't it? The inner circle. Now, mother. They're saying, hey, this uh, Jesus, this is uh, your mother's sister. Now, they're not necessarily saying that, but keep that in mind. It's got to be something for bigness, isn't it? Yeah, this is, I think it's really big. Now, okay, um, look at the way they approach Jesus. Um, in Matthew 20, and it's interesting to use the Gospels together. What's the best interpreter of Scripture? Word of God. You go back in Matthew twenty twenty, and you'll see a, another little detail that helps us out. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So they come bowing down really offering like a prayer out of absolute reverence. They know that He is like God here. And they make the request. Really kind of brash. Are you kidding me? Are you really kidding me? Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Jesus has been teaching for like three years, 24-7, humility. A demonstration of humility right in front of their eyes just constantly. They saw that. And how He would take time to go to people. And those people would come to Him to take time to tell them what the Word of God was about, teach them and, and heal them, and cast out demons. Now, these guys hadn't learned anything about humbling. Matter of fact, it just seems to get worse. You ever wondered about in your Christian life, you can say, man, I'll tell you, I, I even wonder if I'm a Christian sometimes of some of the things that I have done. You, know, you shake your head. You know, what is the, what's going on? We have this battle, don't we? We have battle with sin. We lose a battle sometimes. This is the, the heart here in uh, Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's just like in our Mark passage. But that is so key giving the ransom for the many. So that's what he's thinking. Absolute, humble service as a slave. They make the request. 
Jesus answers, you don't know what you're asking. You have no clue. Sometimes people just jump ahead of Jesus, start getting the plans all together. Boom, this is the way it's going to be. Without even approaching Him. (laughs) This is the way it's going to be done. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Are you able to do that? Now this this cup, what's what's this cup? To, to, To drink of this cup, what's the idea? Are you able to do this? Psalm 75, the cup is spoken of uh, actually in the Old Testament quite a lot. It's the cup of the wrath of God. It's 75 verse 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. All the way down to the very bottom, the dregs, or I think a coffee, the or tea, you know, the little extra stuff that's down at the bottom, little bonus that you get and spit it out, <laughs> you know, they're going to drink this to the dregs. This is the judgment of God, the wrath of God. It's put out. You see it in the Book of Revelation. It talks about that. That's a cup. Drinking the cup, being baptized. We're not talking about a water baptism here. He's going to go be baptized by John the Baptist again. No, we're we're talking here reference to suffering. Drinking the cup. Baptized into his his death. And he says, uh, are you able to do that? And of course, look at their confidence. We are able. Yes, we can do it. You look in Luke 22.33. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. This is Peter. <laughs> That's where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, after you have sinned, strengthen your brothers. And Peter says, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Bold. We are able, he says. Peter says, I will never betray you. Overestimation of ourselves, our pride. Don't we overestimate ourselves? We think we're much better than what we really are. Human pride, it is self-promoting. James and John. What happened to them? Well, if you look in Acts chapter 12, matter of fact, Jesus said to him, the the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I'm baptized. Yes, you are going to suffer and die. Yeah, you're going to have to go through this too. You're right, you're right. Look in Acts 12, early church, very early on in the church. Acts 12, verse 2. Verse 1, let's look at it. About that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. It's more than mistreating them. And he had James, the brother of John, the son of thunder. 
who had now been humbled. He was put to death with a sword. His head was cut off. And there's your first one that uh, we see of the apostles. Their life is taken because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you will see that all the rest of them will be persecuted and killed for that sake. What about John? That's James. We see that right in Acts. And that's not the Fox Book of Martyrs there. Fox Book of Martyrs kind of fills in historically what happened, uh, traditionally anyway, and I think that there's truth to most of those stories. How they died, uh, were persecuted. We know that Peter was uh, hung up on the cross uh, and he requested to be upside down. He was not worthy of the Lord's death and the way that he had died. Revelation 1.9 talks about John. John wrote the book of Revelation. What happened to John? I, John, your brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation, fellow partaker in the tribulation. Well, he was in tribulation, all right. And kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was exiled to spend time by himself on an island. And this is where he wrote the great book of Revelation. Thank the Lord, right? But that wasn't a grand time. It wasn't a vacation or a resort. Hey, I want to tell you, I went out to the Isle of Patmos and spent uh, a year there just kind of uh, out there sunbathing and surfboarding a little bit. The water's great. Mediterranean is beautiful at this time of the year. No. He's been tortured. But he, uh, there are stories of how he might have died, but uh, we know that he went through um, a very suffering time. That's what happened. That's the, aren't you glad that they didn't know that, how it was going to happen? Aren't you glad that you don't know how it's going to happen to you? Jesus could reveal that to us. There are a lot of reasons why he doesn't tell us sometimes what we're going to go through or what we will go through. Just like Job, as we were looking at the other night on that video. Wasn't that incredible? What he was telling there, and then to kind of reverse the thing, you know, at the end of the Well, Job, what if I would have told you that all of this was going to happen? Well, they're ignorant. Can I say that? They're ignorant. We are ignorant. Sometimes God's true. The basic principle. The basic principle here is to have to drink this cup. It's a sacrifice. It's sacrificial. It's this is dealing with God's fury. He's going to take on God's wrath. And in Isaiah chapter fifty three, the prophecy seven hundred years before Christ, we see that it pleased God to crush him. Because that's how our sins are going to be. There's no other way. He said, boy, that sounds kind of crude, Dennis. You're you're saying that God killed him. Well, ultimately he did because he was in control. He could have kept this from happening. But no, he not only didn't keep it from happening, he planned this out. At the same time, in the sovereignty of God, men are doing it and they're held responsible for what they do. Now figure that one out. 
Can you figure that one out? It doesn't make sense. Our finite minds are saying, no, that can't be because it doesn't make sense to my mind. Yeah, our minds are not glorified yet, and so how can I put this together? God does it, but yet the people do it, and God holds them responsible for everything they did. They killed Him. And then it comes to us. We killed Him because of our sin. He had to die for us. In Acts chapter 2, and I was referring to this earlier, the... Peter gives us great sermon, quotes out of the Old Testament, comes along, he says, men of Israel. I want you to listen to this. I mean, this is incredible. Check it out. Jesus, the, the Nazarene, the one who was really here, the one who existed, a man, he was a man, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. He did that. People saw it. It wasn't put into a corner. People witnessed those things. What more do you want? He proves that. He says, He was the one that was here. You guys saw him. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Predetermined and foreknowledge. Those are two deep words. Predetermined means praharizo. And it means that something that was planned or determined before beforehand the plan of Jesus dying. This wasn't an accident and it just happened to go, oh my, Jesus is dying and Jesus saying, I didn't know this was going to happen. He came in a humble way and went out even a more humbler way. But it's the plan and foreknowledge of God. It's not that God saw that it was going to happen so He said, okay, now I'm going to make a plan because I can see ahead of time. Yeah, He can see into the future but this foreknowledge is not foreknowing or like he foreknew us, he knew we'd be here, and he knew the ones who were going to make a decision for him, right? No, that's not the way it is. I mean, he knows that. But the word here is to have a knowledge, intimate knowledge, to know them intimately. He intimately knew Christ, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You have predestination and foreknowledge here in one verse. You nailed to a cross. He said, this is God's plan. He did it. He caused it. It's the only way it can be. It is the gospel. And then you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But then God raised Him up. It goes much further. We can say, what kind of God is this? that would cause a death for His own Son. You see what His plan is? That it goes much further than the way that we see it. So when things don't make sense in your own life, just realize there's another chapter. You know what I mean? God has something else designed. This is part of His plan. That is unbelievable, but that's the way it is. The Lord is saying, okay, you want glory? Well, yes. If you're willing to drink of the cup that I drink of, be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized, yes. Uh, are you willing to go to the way of the cross? That's it. The cross before the crown. You ever heard of that? The cross before the crown. The crowns are coming, but we'll just give them back. But the crowns are coming. The glory is coming. The suffering is before the glory. If it's that way for the Master, how much more would it be for the slave? Baptized with the baptism of suffering. 
Now, back to Mark. We get into the rest of the story. Boy, this is unbelievable. It's amazing how humans take something of God and make it into something else. Verse 41. Hearing this, the ten. Yeah, the ten. They heard this. They, they heard James and John going up there. Can you believe that? They're thinking, I'm, I want to be up there at that time. They're indignant with James and John. They're mad. <laughs> they are just, they're jealous. What are they doing up there? Because they were thinking about doing the same thing. Now they're going to get indignant. Hey, these guys are going to look bad. Jesus knows what's going on. They became displeased, indignant. They weren't in, uh, indignant at the self-centeredness of the sons of thunder. I think they were annoyed that James and John had beat them to it. I think that's really what's going on. First and second place beside the Lord Jesus. Yeah. So they're arguing who's going to be the greatest. Sounds familiar. Boy, we covered that. Jesus says, okay guys, it's time to go to school. Class is now convened. It's teaching time. And maybe this will stick into your mind someday. Verse 42. Calling them to Himself. Jesus said to them, You know. You know. And it's amazing. He doesn't really rebuke them here. You're ready for Him to really take on the the switch to them, you know? Take them to the woodshed. Look what He does. This, This is something. I'm amazed by this. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, you know what they do. You know, they want to be the greatest. They lord it over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. But this is not the way among you guys. This is not the way it's to be. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. That doesn't happen out in the world, does it? Where you have the great coming down condescending and just taking care of your needs. Whatever needs to be done. People want to climb all over people, right? Boy, does He give them a lesson here. This is, this is just like Jesus. He's so gentle at times. Let's start with what you know. You know what the Gentiles do. Those, those pagans, the Romans, the Gentiles, the rulers of the nations, they lord it over them. What is He saying here? Wait a minute. Where'd you, where'd you learn this at? Where, where did you learn this? What kind of attitude is this? The ancient rulers have always done They self-promote them. They uh, are confident. And they are very arrogant, very prideful. They are it. It's about me. It's about exalting myself. This whole thing is me. Gentiles lorded it over. They lorded it over the people. They wanted to be at the top. That's the worldly way to operate. This is the way that humans think. So Peter addresses this in this uh, in his uh, epistle that uh, we had done back several weeks ago. He said, as far as the elders are concerned, don't lord it over the people. You know, there are bishops pastors and all sorts of leaders, even the deacons that step ahead of everybody else. And they're the ones that demand the attention. They'll tell you what to do. 
And he tells the elders, don't lord it over. Even though you're a shepherd, you'd be like a shepherd to the sheep. So they want to capitalize on this influence that they think they're getting. He says, you want to throw your weight around here, don't you? That's not the principle of the kingdom of God. That's not the way it's working. It's not what you're going to be. Well, that now we've looked at it the way that God looks at it. We've looked at it the way that man looks like it. Does man look at things the way that God does? That is my thing that I have to learn myself. And as I learn it, I pass it on to others. And it's an ongoing thing. You say, well, I already know about this. No, you don't. Because you just blew it when you said that. Because you think you know it all. You don't need any more teaching. I've heard all this. I've read the Bible ten times. I know about it. I don't need to hear that. Yeah, we do. We need to be humbled. Here's the way that God says it. Here's the way that man says it. And now we see Jesus is the one who is the example of what greatness is. Totally far away from any kind of thought that we would have ever come up with. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Remember the first, last, last first? We finished that last week. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Verse 43, servant, diakonos, deacon, one who executes the commands of another. It was used as a servant of a king. It was used as like a waiter at a table, a busboy, servant. John 13, 13. John 13, 13. You know what's happening? The, the night, uh, the Passover, before He's going to be betrayed. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I give you an example that you also should do as I did to you. He washed their feet. The most menial task of a servant slave to wash somebody's feet. That's almost like being spit on or spitting on somebody or something. I don't know. You know this sounds so opposite. Have this mind in you. The mind of Christ. Philippians two, five through eight. To esteem others higher than yourself. Then he gives the example, the extreme humili- uh, humiliation of Christ, the humility there, the epitome of humility is Jesus going to the cross. You can read that in Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. So he uses the word diakonos in our Mark 10 passage in verse 43. And then verse 44, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave. Well, now he takes it down a notch or two. or Let's just take it as far as we can go. 
This is doulos. This is the slave. To spend your time serving the Master. Giving up your will. This is somebody who is now devoted to another. He is uh, the bond slave. Paul says, I, an apostle, and a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Or in the Old Testament, a bond slave who willingly gives his life over to the Master for the rest of his life and even his family and they will serve that Master from there on out. And they would not to deal in his ear and boom, that tells him that's he's that kind of slave. A slave. Doulos. That's what we are. I like to refer to myself as a slave because I can't think of anybody else better than I want to serve than my Master, Jesus Christ. A slave of Christ. Remember that book that MacArthur had? One word. Slave. You know what? It offended people all over the evangelical world. Why? It's biblical. It's all over the New Testament. Old Testament, it's what it's about. He was a slave for us. And we are to be a slave of Him. Oh, man. Why wouldn't you want to be a slave? Guess who we get to serve? And He serves us while we serve Him. How's that work? King of the universe. I'm proud to be a slave. But people of who have a history of what mankind slavery is were thinking that. It offended them. They said, we can't be called slaves. They got all upset and said, you're, you're creating havoc in our community and because of their color. And all oh, they get upset. This, this Bible is colorblind. It's not dealing with that. It's talking about being a slave of Christ. No longer a slave of Satan. We are a slave of Christ. Man, totally... Under His control. Whatever He says, I want to do it. He's, he's the Master because He knows best. I sure don't because I have goofed it up. I know that I am not that good of a person. Consider everybody a person to be served. Did you hear that? Consider everyone here a person to be served and go serve them. Quit sitting at home and doing your little shameful self thing. I'm telling you, get up off the seat. We've been here for years, some of us, and we need to be serving. This is a chance to say that. This is what Jesus said. You are obligated. You don't have a choice. Start serving, folks. The opportunity to serve and the obligation to serve, this is what this is about. Jesus is saying this to the disciples and they don't get it. How long do you want to go the rest of your life and not getting it or not wanting to get it? I'm telling you, it's, it's in front of you here. Christ is speaking. I'm just a voice. I'm just a messenger. I'm nobody. But if you really take this as the Word of God, then you say, okay, I'm going to get up off my seat at home, off my couch, and I'm going to start doing things for the Lord, for the body of Christ. There are people there who are in need. We have new people here in this church. They need to be served. Serve them. Come up to them and ask, how can I serve you? How can I be a slave? How can I satisfy what you need. That's what we need to be doing. You want to know why? We're closing it off. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served. This is God. He didn't come to be served. He could have. If anybody ever deserved it, it was Him. In the castle, laying on the couch, eating what? Bonbons? He could have done that. Grapes? you know, And He could have deserved that. But no, He didn't do that. 
told you about that. To give his life a ransom for many. And we stop off with this, but it's great doctrine. And this should stick in our heads here. To whom was the ransom paid? It's to God, isn't it? Did you know there are some people that think the ransom is to Satan? He's satisfying Satan's demand. (laughs) No, it's to God. God is the judge. The judge has to be satisfied. This is all dealing with lawyer terms. The God is, is the executioner. He's the judge. He has to be, and I use this word lightly, but appeased. Or the better word is propitiation. There's a propitiation. There's a demand that has to be done and He is now pleased with what is done. When Christ did His work on the cross, folks, we're getting into heavy doctrine. We've been into practice. Now we get into the doctrine. This time, usually it's doctrine first, then practice. Well, here it's saying, here's what you do. Now He's saying, why? God has been satisfied. The ransom has been paid. God is pleased with the perfect sacrifice. We look at the cross and say, man, I have failed something severely. Dennis, this Word has just convicted me. Well, God did it. I didn't. But His Word does. His, His authority here. He gave His life a price that was paid in full. It's stamped. It's done. The judge. Divine justice. He says the wrath has now been satisfied. God's wrath has been satisfied for what Christ has done. The Christ... Christ paid, satisfied God. Propitiated the anger. It settled justice. He did it for many. The one for the many. The many. Who's who's the many? Well, the ones that He died for. The ones who He had foreknown. The ones who He had predetermined long before creation the ones he knew even before they weren't even they were even born in exchange there's substitution there for the little f o r there for many he substituted he took our place it's like get out of the way boom he went into that spot took our sins placed it on himself That's where they would die. Placed His righteousness, even though we're not righteous, put it on us. And now we have the robes of righteousness and we can stand uncondemned before the Holy God. The model is Christ. He's the servant. He's the slave. He was the one lifted up and exalted by the Father. Given a name above all names, as it says in Philippians 2. And he served, he had sacrificed, and he was deemed by God to be at the highest level. But he had to do it. The path to greatness, it's not the world's way. It's not the self-way, is it? path to greatness is God's way. path to greatness is being a slave, a servant. The world's way works in the world. That's the way it works. Do you like it? Do you like the way the world works? Hey, how about how about the way our government is being ran? You like that? That's the way it works, folks. You like that? Being exalted. Call the shots. Say anything you want. Bring on insurance plans. It'll destroy our country. Go ahead. He can do that. He can do it even illegally. Somebody who's exalted like that. 
That's not humility. The world's way may work in the world, but it really doesn't. God's way works in the kingdom. Did you get substitutionary atonement in that dealing with the ransom? The ransom and pay. That's the price for a slave to be bought out of slavery. The slavery to sin, Satan, death, hell. He bought us out of that. The price has been paid. Jesus paid it all. It's already been done. We can't add to it. It is finished, Jesus said. Close this off. We're done. The beginning of greatness is to be little. The increase of greatness is to be less. The perfection of greatness is to be nothing. I'm nothing without Christ. How great are you in God's eyes? Well, there's been a death that has happened. The death of Christ. How successful are you in God's eyes? We measure ourselves by what happened at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, You are great. We in ourselves are really nothing, as Your Word says. But then we are something because of Christ. And in Christ we see we have the high spiritual blessings of all the things of God. We have eternal life. We have godliness. We want to seek You more, Lord, to learn more about what godliness is and what Your plan of the kingdom is so that we can show the lost world and show to others in the body of Christ how humility, how being a servant, how being a slave really is because actually it puts us up on the top right in the kingdom of God, right with Christ. What a beauty it is, Lord. And when we hear these things about where we're really placed into Christ, it should motivate us to be the servant that You've designed us to be. Lord, help us to be more willing. You've brought people to us. Help us to serve them. Help us to be available. Help us to help the ones who are struggling and and down. And if we don't know, then we're not uh, talking to the people. We all need to be communicating in this body of Christ. How are we ever going to get it? Well, we have all Your truth right here. We should be getting it. We have Your Holy Spirit. We have more advantages than the apostles ever did. We're on the backside of all of that with the Holy Spirit in our lives. Forgive us where we fall short and are sinful. And at the same time, thank You for Your grace and forgiveness and Your love, Your mercy. Thank You for showing us all that You have done and continue to do for us. We are blessed mightily. We thank You, Lord, for the Savior. Amen. Amen.